I've been with the company for 24 years. I was posted in Greece for 15. Papandreou wins that election if I don't help the junta take him prisoner. I've advised and armed the Hellenic army. I've neutralized champions of communism. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish, which should come in handy here in Virginia, and I'm never ever sick at sea. So I want to know why I'm not going to be your Helsinki station chief. All right, folks, here we go. Last seminar on the list for 2022 is December 9th through the 11th. After that will be February 17th through the 19th, 2023. So just so you know, after this year, we are going to experience a slight increase in the price of the seminar. So if you want to save yourself a couple bucks, treat yourself to an early Hanukkah gift, I would suggest signing up for the December seminar. For training camps on the list, we do have a self-sufficient lifter camp on November 19th. That's in Wichita Falls, covering the squat, the press, the deadlift, how to film yourself, and how to diagnose your own technique. We've added another lift, shoot, fight camp to the list. That's going to be December 17th through the 18th in Wichita Falls. That's a two-day camp covering the lifts, some firearm stuff, and some combatives. Seoul Brothers in Seoul, South Korea are back at it with back-to-back camps on December the 4th. First up, a squat camp in the morning followed by a deadlift and power clean camp later that afternoon. They are two separate camps, but if you purchase them together, you can save 40 bucks. Squat and deadlift camps on the list November 19th in Moodus, Connecticut, that's Central Connecticut, at Anino Strength and Conditioning. Then December 11th in Chicago at Starting Strength Chicago in the city that has arguably the worst pizza in the country. Finally, some three-lift camps on the list. That's covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift. Baltimore at 5x3 training on October 30th has a couple spots left. And London on December 11th also with only two spots left. So don't delay. Folks, we want to continue to open these starting strength gyms, and we are only limited by our ability to get qualified coaches. But we won't lower our standards, so we do have a process to help people that want to become coaches become some of the best coaches in the industry. If you're interested in what opportunities are available, what the prep course is about, what the apprenticeship program is about, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com, check out the coaching tab, read through the information there, maybe get linked up with the queen of Hanukkah herself, Anna Capel, and she'll walk you through what's the what. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, today, we are going to talk about uh, some fairly important stuff we need to discuss. And I uh, probably should have done this a long time ago, but uh, we're going to talk about what you need to do if you can't do, if you can't do the main lifts as we suggest they be done there are workarounds we're going to talk about when to use them when not to use them and we're going to talk about the role of the coach in in this situation as well so it'll be uh, be some solid information for you on this this particular 
podcast, this actually may be more useful than the vast majority of them. Certainly be more useful than when we turn the show over to you <laughs> with your Q&A situation. I'm pretty disappointed in this because you're going soft. I thought you were supposed to be dogmatic. Dogmatic? Dogma? Yeah. I mean, here you are That's talking about That's when you act like a, a variation. What does that have to do with dogs? I don't know. Do you understand the, the entomology, the etymology of that term? No, I don't. Entomology is the study of insects. Right. Etymology is the study of word origins. Do you know that? Yes. You did know that? I did. Well, good. Bree, did you know that? No, see? Bree learned something. Bree learned something, at least. Maybe Rusty did, too. Maybe Rusty did, but Rusty's smart enough to keep his mouth shut. Dogma entered the English from oh. Latin term meaning philosophical <laughs> tenets. You mean philosophical? philosophical That's so hard to pronounce. Thanks for, <laughs> Thanks for uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, Rusty. <laughs> Rusty's normal, you said, you just valuable said, you just contribution. You said he was smart to enough to keep his mouth shut. And then yeah, he, and he opens and his he mouth this. and removes all that. Oh, uh, fucking bok choy just got blown off of the monkey there. Even oh when I, I was coming out, I was like, this is yeah. really wrong. Yeah, I should have shut up. Philosophical tenet. Philosophical tenet. That's what it means in Latin. It's what? That's what it means in Latin. Philosophical tenet. Tenet. Yes. Philosophical tenet. Yes. The dogma. Yes. Well, it's not the inflection. that it. That's not what it implies. Dogma implies the inflexible adherence to the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah, that's just where just let me start. Let me define stuff instead of whatever the fuck you, you know, the dictionary.com dictionary.com shit. All right. Okay. So anyway, before we get started with the actual productive shit that we're going to talk about today, we have to do the obligatory comments. comments. From, from the heaters. You know, and these really are not haters as much as they're just dumbasses. But if we call it comments from the dumbasses, then that's not as much fun as comments no, from the not. haters, right? Yeah. yeah. For example... This is a, a response to physical strength is the most important thing in life, which is uh, uh, show number 96. Going way back way into back. Yeah. podcast history here. Yeah. And this, this guy says, uh, kind of a clickbaity title for an hour-long podcast that doesn't talk about that topic for like... 90% of the video LMAO. He must be new. You think he's new? Must be new, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Could be. He just picked up number 96. Maybe he watched right. them all through and then at 96 came to that. Right. He, he just, yeah. at, at 96, it, the, the pressure just built up <laughs> to the point where he had to. <laughs> Get on YouTube and make a comment. Watched about 150 hours and it's right. like I cannot take it anymore. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> it's always this 90% is clickbait. <laughs> talking about other right. things. 
All right, here's one. Uh, in fact, there's two on here from Quit Putting Your Plates on the Wrong Way nice. video. Nice. Excellent. Good. This one is Temper Temper. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, here's the other one. Uh, file this under Shit No One Cares About. Well, which video was that? Quit putting your plates on the bar. 1.2 million people say otherwise. 1.2 million views on that. No one cares about it. 3.5 thousand. Wait, 3.5K. 3,500 comments. No, it's 3,500. 3,500 comments. No, 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 that's the views. 1.2 million views, 3,500 comments. Oh, I see. Most of which are exceedingly positive, by the way. Well, but the positive stuff just, you know. No it's time not fun. No time for it. It's, it's not, not fun. You know, no, if it no, bleeds, no, no, no it leads. It. That's yeah, our motto that's right. here, just like it is in the news, you know. If it bleeds, it leads. Just for your mental health, Rip. Yeah. Uh, Abhijay S. Kumar says, thank you, sir. I'll try to apply this in my home gym. See, look well, at that. good. Look at that. Isn't that nice of him? But, U-M. again. Hey, hang on. U.M. I've never met him before, but I love this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> you need to meet them then. While this other shit no one cares about is more fun, right? Uh, okay. that, that took me thirty seconds to find. <laughs> oh, this is a great one here. This is this is regarding your lats and the deadlift with Brent Carter. Oh, good man! All these guys look like they don't even lift LMAO. <laughs> What is the deal with LMAO? We're, I don't even remember when that started. It's been a long it's time. It's been a long time, though. It's been I a mean, long it time. just started. I think uh, probably early 2000s. It's just well, obligatory to put it at the end of every sentence. I think it apparently. all came from. I, I may be wrong, but I think it all came from uh, when texting started. No, it was when um, Instant Messenger was big. Oh, right. AOL Instant, Instant Messenger. Messenger. That's, pre- yeah. that's pre-texting. Yeah, so that's like nineties. And, and it might be it might be chat room stuff from even before that. Yeah, probably is. <clears throat> probably is. Just saves so much time. Yeah. Because time is important to sure. a guy like this. Of course, man. You, you know. got a comment on the next video that comes up. <laughs> time is of the essence to laugh, a, a, a intellect laughing like Laughing my... It takes a long time. Yeah. LMAO, done. Right. They probably have a hot key. Yeah. Oh, here's a real good one. Uh, Rickert, 15, and there are three Ks in the middle of Rickert. Now, <laughs> what does that mean? Don't fail to notice this. Okay, there's three K's. K K K. Get it? Got it. I don't know. Should we even read this? What, what's the this video? Is obviously read, a racist. Read it. Learning to deadlift the oh. starting strength method. Yeah, I'll bleep it out if it's bad. All right. Well, get ready. Deadlifting with sh- lifting shoes is not good. It elevates the heels of about 0.75 to 1.5 inches. And that's a hell of a heel. <laughs> Which makes a deadlift more difficult and less efficient by recruiting the knee extensors more than the posterior chain. Hmm. Well, I mean, he can't say it if it's not true. Yeah. That is highly it's illegal. Offensive. To type things that aren't true, that's false advertising. Right? Thanks, Rickert. 
Rick Kurt. Rick KKK Ert. You racist piece of dog shit. Racism. Are you okay, Nick? There's nothing worse than okay, racism, is there, Nick? No, nothing. No, I, I can't I, think of anything worse. I can't either. I can't either. Gang rape pales in comparison ah, to racism. No. no. Nope. Just, you know, where'd Bree go? <laughs> she couldn't got handle a, it. She couldn't handle truck. it. Couldn't handle the racism, racism. talk. Oh, it's not the truck? No. Oh, okay. No. She does not condone uh, racism. I'll, uh, silence is violence, so she left. <laughs> silence is violence. So instead of committing violence, she left. She, she's not violent. Because she can't talk, so she's got to leave. Right. To avoid the violence. I think she's unloading the truck. <laughs> <laughs> now that I hear the truck. All right. Oh, for fuck's sake. All right. Rip talks about animal cruelty. Uh, all right. Oh, for OFFS. When the FK did Rip care about animal cruelty? He eats their dead bodies. FFS. <laughs> well, it would be cruel if I ate them while they were alive. <laughs> But let me point out the fact that <laughs> if I was dead, they would be eating me. They would. Wouldn't they? Yeah. So I got no sympathy for Tit them. Tit for tat. Look, you know, you cows out there listening to the <laughs> podcast, if you guys don't want to be eaten, do something about it. Yeah, they're huge. I mean, they could do I mean, something. You know, you, you weigh 1,200 pounds. I mean, two of them can just walk together and smash, and smash me into grease. Yeah. You know, but they don't do it. They could learn from their you, friends. That you know why them. they don't do that? Because <clears throat> they want to be dead. Because they enjoy, because they're masochists. Yeah. They enjoy being eaten. Yeah. They like watching their friends be taken off to the animal, uh, to the animal cruelty Frank's facility. Frank's going to the animal cruelty <laughs> facility, and I'm still here, <laughs> shitting on the floor. And Converted. eating this grass. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Fuck Frank's you, Frank. A good name for a cow. <laughs> Converting insoluble fiber to protein. Right. And nothing and much else. Oh, and it continues. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. It's evil to castrate a dog, but you also tell people to eat a pound of beef and a gallon of milk a day. Pound of beef a meal. A pound of beef, yeah. Eat a pound of beef and a gallon of milk a day. Now, I want you to eat more than a pound of yeah. beef a day. But the gallon of milk cruelty part, I don't really... Well, you're stealing... Do you understand? Well, you're stealing milk. How I'm stealing did, milk the out of the belly of a calf. The cow did not consent to <clears throat> you taking its milk. It's cruelty. Oh, I think dairy cows are pretty well taken care of. That's what you think. See, this guy's in New York City, though, and he doesn't understand anything about anything. Yeah. He thinks People up there think they have absolute, total knowledge of all things, and they don't know a goddamn thing about anything. They, don't know, they have no idea what they don't know, you know? Yep. They just go to the store down the street. Where does milk come from? The store. It comes out of that plastic jug. It comes from almonds. 
and oats. Almonds, soys. <laughs> you squeeze the almond until it, until, until milk, milk comes, comes out. out of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know we're coming up on show number two hundred. Man, you remember you're going to do the show one hundred. You're going to you're going to do the comments from the haters compilation show again. Be as good, man. What? I don't know if they'll be as good as the first time around. I think it's got to be every hundred shows. Okay. And it keeps us from having to record a show that day. It has that, <laughs> you know, creates, it creates a bunch of work, of work for, for Rusty. For Rusty. <laughs> and he's overpaid already. I am. <laughs> I am. Episode 200 should be the Brie interview. Ooh. She's not going to do an interview. Have you lost your mind? No, she's not going to do it. She's not going to do an interview. Okay. Well, you guys decide. We will, she will mean? show us her tits before she sits down and, <laughs> and does an interview <laughs> about anything. <laughs> okay, so anyway, now we come to the my favorite part of the show which is where I conclude comments, comments. From, from the haters. It's like a thousand pound yeah. rock lifted off my back to get through with it. Well, it sets the tone for the whole show, man. does, in fact. <clears throat> now, I already talked about what we're going to talk about today. Do you remember what it was? Remember what I said we were going to talk about? Uh, dog- dogma. No, no, it wasn't that. It was no, it wasn't dogma. That was just the thing that got spent more time on. Right, and right. The, the philosophical <laughs> tenets, <laughs> according to no, Rusty. What we're going to talk about, <laughs> let, me just, let me just do this for you, okay? What we're going to talk about today is it's what you can do when you can't do the lifts. In other words, the squat, the press, the deadlift, the bench press, the power clean, the, and chins. The six primary exercises that comprise what we do in the gym. And if you can't do those, what do you do? Right? Now, you have to understand that we train a very, very broad demographic. We don't just train 22-year-old college seniors. We don't just train high school athletes. We don't just train you know, in shape, 35-year-old guys. We train everybody. We train 55-year-old real estate salesmen who haven't actually done anything in 54 years. We, we train your grandmother. We train everybody. And when we train a broad demographic that has not been selected by a college recruiter, then we run into varying uh, levels of capability, of physical capacity. And we have to know how to deal with varying levels of physical capacity. One of the reasons that we are better as, as, as strength coaches than the people in, in the business of coaching D1 and professional athletes is that we know how to deal with everybody, and they know how to deal with very few people. They know how to deal with genetic freaks, and genetic freaks are really easy to deal with. 
you just leave them alone and you look like you know what you're doing because after all the guy's a genetic freak right if you're working at a at a pro team you don't know a tenth of what we know you haven't got a hundredth actually of what we know you don't know how to teach a power snatch you don't know how to teach the squat because you never thought about it because the kids can do some version of a squat when they show up and you don't have to actually go to the go to the trouble of correcting their technique because you don't because <laughs> you don't know what correct technique is because you never thought about it because you never had to think about it because you you deal with people who are already strong you deal with a collection of people that are that are genetic freaks that have got big verticals that learn physical things very very easily you don't have to solve the kind of problems that a coach in one of our gyms has to solve because the people you coach don't have the kind of problems that we see every single day and that we have to fix if we are going to be successful in getting these people strong so solving these kind of problems is inherent in what we do all right now it is true that most people that come into um, a gym that operates at the level of a starting strength gym uh, it's true that most people are, are physically capable of doing all or most at least of these exercises without any major interventions being required but we see people all the time who for example cannot put the bar on their back in the low bar position squat down and below parallel and stand back up using their hips we see people all the time that can't do that so when that happens what do you do you have to do something you can't just ignore the problem you can't let them do things wrong you have to bring them in the direction of a correct functional squat with enough weight on their back to make a stress to which they can adapt okay you have to do that or you are not doing your job as a coach now there are a lot of coaches that don't do their jobs as coaches all right we're going to talk about some of that today but when we start working with a client who is physically compromised in some way just completely detrained right overweight to the extent that they actually cannot do a below parallel squat stand back up we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that all right and we're going to look at all of the lifts today and and look at the problems associated with each one of these lifts and then we are going to uh tell you how we solve these things and this may if you're a coach this i think is going to function as an excellent refresher for you or if you're training by yourself in your garage and your mom wants to has expressed an interest in in you training her uh we're going to give you some some pointers on exactly what to do in order to be the most productive director of her time whenever we talk about uh modifying things there should be some uh some words of caution especially for our our fans because people tend to 
look for reasons to not do things in the most efficient way possible. So, <clears throat> and also there's there's a whole industry of quote unquote uh, strength coaches who go out of their way to say it doesn't matter what you do. Right. Um, and if you and if you start well, talking if, about if it doesn't matter what you do, it's really easy to coach. Of course it is. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, so right. if you. Uh, if you don't have to worry about technique and all that shit, then it's, it, life becomes way easier. But the reason the reason we do things the way we do is because it, it comes down to efficiency, right? So efficiency of movement, <clears throat> adding more weight to the bar, and so on. So everything, every decision that you make from a programming standpoint and from an exercise selection standpoint, which is essentially what we're talking about today, yeah, uh, has a trade off in terms of efficiency. The four the four lifts, the way that you describe them in the book are the most efficient way to do the lifts to lift the most amount of weight possible using the most effect the most effective range of motion because and so on to preface this to get entire stronger. discussion this is a strength program to get stronger right this is not a muscle belly sculpting program right all right this is not a getting ripped program this is a strength program this is a a practical way for you to increase your ability to apply force against an external resistance that's all it is we're not bodybuilding we're not doing aesthetics we're getting you strong okay so when you're thinking about what to if you need to make a modification you shouldn't look at this as somebody tells me that they have xyz problem or i think i have a certain problem so then the solution is to do all of these different things like you should start with the basic version of things and then make changes reluctantly if you need to but what we're going to talk about today is, say you present in the gym unable to do the correct way of the, the that we teach of the of the the five actually basic lifts and the chin, okay, which are first assistance exercise we always use. What if you're unable to do it the most efficient way, and there are people that show up that can't do it? All right, let's say you're just so completely detrained at the age of 65 that you cannot squat below parallel and then stand back up because you lack the ability to generate sufficient force to get up out of a position below parallel and return to the upright position that we that we use between reps okay the uh, i mean we see this all the time you know, probably 5%, would you say, of the people that come into the gym suffer some level of detraining to the extent that they actually cannot get back up out of a below parallel squat. Now, let me, let me, let me first say that a lot of inexperienced coaches interpret an inability to squat to depth and recover from it as a flexibility issue all right that's almost never the case that is almost never ever the case we have been doing the seminar uh, in which saturday morning everybody in the room squats for 16 years now been doing this for 16 years and during that period of time there have not been five people unable to show us a below parallel squat saturday morning and we don't train athletes 
in the seminars. Athletes don't come to the seminars. These are adults who can pay their way across country, pay our fee, and be trained. These are all adults. And every one of these people, with the exception of maybe five, over the years have shown us a below parallel squat on at least one of the reps of the set of five that they have to demonstrate uh, around the room when we when we do our last set of squats during the day everybody squats everybody squats for everybody else have you do you remember anybody that couldn't go below parallel for at least one of the reps which means they can get down there if you just it's rare. mash on them enough yeah it's rare well it's not just rare it's just almost doesn't happen yeah all right uh it almost does not happen you know we've gone you know, probably three years at a time without seeing anyone who was literally unable to get below parallel. Now, every once in a while, somebody that's 84 will sign up for the course. And they are not physically strong enough to use the bottom of the range of motion. And this is who we're talking about. Now, if you are 84 and you've signed up for our seminar, we love you because you're cool. You know, 84-year-old person just hauls off and signs up for something that most 35-year-olds haven't got the balls to do. You know, you're, you're in the club, man. We, we automatically owe you a beer. And uh, we want to hear the stories, you know, because you got some stories of your 84 and you're coming to a <laughs> starting strength seminar. Uh, but the vast majority of people who cannot do a below parallel squat are simply not strong enough to do it. And that's all there is to it. It is not a matter of flexibility. It is not a matter of any particular level of skill it is the fact that they're not strong enough to get up out of a squat that deep that's all there is to it they're not strong enough and if you're a crossfit coach all of the half squat uh, half range of motion body weight squats in the world are not going to strengthen that part of the range of motion up because they don't work that part of the range of motion in order to strengthen the bottom of the squat you have to strengthen a part of the range of motion of the squat that most people don't voluntarily go into so how do we fix this well there's about three different ways that have been that have been suggested uh, for doing this now we're and we're going to talk about all three of these right now all right my favorite way and the way I have used for years with success every single time is through the use of the 45-degree leg press machine. All right. Now, it's a machine. All right. And we don't like machines, do we? Well, we don't like machines in, as a substitute for barbell training. All right, we don't like machines as a substitute for doing things through a full range of motion where you balance everything and 
and uh, are responsible for the completion of the rep all by yourself. But we do understand that there is a role in certain populations for machines. And those machines are specifically the 45-degree leg press and the lat pull-down. A lat machine, and we'll talk about this later, lat machine's a very useful device to solve several problems. We don't train on it, using our definition of the word train. We don't train on the lat machine. But we use it to solve problems for people who can't do chins. We also can use it to solve problems in the press, if, if necessary. But my favorite way of dealing with a person who cannot squat below parallel is to put them on the leg press machine and start with a light weight and actually work the entire range of motion that will be used during the squat. Now, this typically takes about three weeks. And once we get the leg press up to about a body weight load for a set of 10, the next workout is the 45-pound bar for the regular three sets of five that we will be using in the squat, and then we never use the leg press machine again because it's, at that point it's not necessary. But if you're so detrained that you're not strong enough to use the range of motion at the bottom and get back up out of the bottom with your hips in a properly executed squat, the leg press is an excellent way to get you there. All right, and that's my preferred method. Now, the, the downside of a leg press machine is you gotta buy the leg press machine. They're, they're not cheap. A good one is not cheap. All right, and the other downside, and probably the biggest downside for most gyms that deal with our training method is the damn thing's got a pretty big footprint. It takes up a lot of room in the floor. All right, and if it takes up a lot of room in the floor, you have to decide whether you need it or not. And uh, most people that are operating uh, a gym, a black iron gym like we like we use on a daily basis, most of them have decided that they don't have the room in the floor. Now, Wichita Falls Athletic Club is big. We run an 8,100 square foot building. Now, I got I got room for a leg press machine, and I've used it for years, and we use it all the time for things like this. It comes in handy, and it fills in a a, a fills a role that is sometimes very difficult to to fill with the other two alternatives to this uh, this problem we have with detrained either fat people or detrained older people. Right, so there'd be let's back up. There'd be two two different groups that couldn't squat their body weight, right? These are people that are that are so heavy that they lack the strength to get back up out of the bottom of the of the squat. And these are people that are so old at any body composition that they just lack the strength. And that's why they're there. You're there to, for you to make them stronger. And if the leg press allows you to make them strong enough to do a full squat in three weeks, then you use the leg press machine. All right? If you don't have a leg press machine, what do you do? Well, there's a couple of different other approaches to this thing. Uh, one is the box squat, where we start with 
uh, a box that you squat down to and squat back up off of. All right. And obviously the way this works is that you stack enough stuff up on top of the box to shorten the range of motion of the squat to a range of motion that the that the detrained person can manage. And then you gradually increase the range of motion by removing material from the box. So the way we make adjustments for the height of the box is well, you can do two or three different things. You can buy uh, a little plyometric box, a little steel plyometric box with a plywood top. And then you can add things, like a 12-inch one. Then you add things to the top of that to allow you to shim up the range of motion to the person's capability. Uh, so what would what that would look like might be a set of pieces of half inch or three quarter inch plywood, some some plates of plywood, and you would have enough you know available to you to generate. Uh, what would be a half squat for most people and then you have them squat down for your sets of five and then the next workout you remove one of the pieces of plywood and gradually approach a below parallel squat that way that works there are some things about that i don't like i've never used it successfully but i know that a lot of people in the business have used it successfully and the the thing i don't like about it is that you you cannot actually strengthen a range of motion through which you do not move All right now you can get closer every time by lowering the shims but every time you take a three quarters of an inch or an inch away from the squat that you're performing <clears throat> You are going to be uh, subjecting the muscle mass that's moving the load to an eccentric range it has not been exposed to. In other words, that person is going to be sore every time they train for, you know, the three weeks or four weeks it takes you to get them down to that, to that below parallel range of motion. Now, that's not that big a deal if you're a younger guy and and can deal psychologically with being sore for quite some time but when when we start an average trainee off squatting um that average trainee is only sore a couple of times like you walk into gym you're 18 year old kid you walk into gym and we take you up to 135 pounds for three sets of five on your first workout you're gonna be sore all right when we go to 145 on your second workout 48 hours later you'll be a little sore when we go to 155 the third workout you're probably not going to get sore the only thing that gets sore on a regular basis in the squat is the quads but uh and there's always a little tiny bit of quad soreness, you know, but, but, but debilitating muscle soreness for the first six months of a novice linear progression doesn't occur. 
you know, we, we have people go from a 135-pound squat to a 365-pound squat for sets of five without being brutally sore at any point after the first week. We, this, is, this is normal. And that has to do with the nature of soreness. And uh, if, you're, if you're terribly curious about that, maybe we'll do a, a podcast about muscle soreness one time. It's an important topic. A whole lot of people are under the impression that if you're not sore, you're not getting stronger. That soreness is the, is the indicator of progress, and that's absolutely not true. There's nothing about that that makes any sense. CrossFit has, has screwed a whole bunch of people up under that assumption. Soreness doesn't make you stronger. Soreness is an unfortunate byproduct of unadapted to eccentric loading. But the soreness itself is not something that we're trying to accomplish here. If you take a piecemeal approach to lowering the squat over the course of three weeks, you're going to produce more soreness than if you used the leg press method. Or the other thing that I'm going to suggest, which is using bands inside the rack. Now, the use of bands inside the rack is a is a, probably an underappreciated uh, method for doing this, but it does work. And it, it has the advantage of allowing you to, to train the client through the full range of motion on the very first workout. And by bands, I mean the rubber training bands that provide resistance to, uh, to the bar and, you know, things like West Side Method and other types of uh, training that I never have really understood outside the context of suit and wraps powerlifting. Because bands and chains... You know, you see these in in uh, videos on YouTube all the time. Some stupid-ass high school coach has got his little 165-pound sophomores lifting in the rack with bands and chains for absolutely no apparent reason, just because he's seen Louis Simmons do it. Serious misapplication. It's a complete mis- misunderstanding of what the hell's going yeah. on. You know, put bands and chains in – in suit and rash powerlifting are used to simulate the loading pattern that you get with suit and wraps because with suit and wraps the bottom of the range of motion is easy and it gets heavier as the suit and wraps quit working against the mechanics out of the bottom of the hole they use those things to train a lift that gets heavier as you approach the end of the range of motion which doesn't happen that's the opposite of what happens with with actual body weight strength training i don't see that it has any application for anything we do at all the only thing it applies to is shooting wraps powerlifting but the bands themselves are useful if we are dealing with a person who cannot squat all the way to the bottom of the range of motion below parallel and stand back up we can set up a set of bands there exists a set of bands that we can stretch between the pins of the power rack and make a little springy seat for them to sit down on. You have to play with this. It takes some, some practice dealing with this. You have to put the band at the right height. 
to intercept the person's hips as they go down, provide enough resistance to help them get back up out of the bottom of that range of motion they're actually not strong enough to use. But it has the advantage of having the person moving through the entire range of motion from the beginning of the movement. The first day they train, they're actually using the full range of motion, kind of like a leg press machine. But the bands help you through the part of the range of motion you're not strong enough to use, while allowing you to produce a muscle contraction through that range of motion. They're very useful for this. There exists a combination of bands that can pick anybody up out of the bottom of a squat with just their body weight. So they're useful for that. Um, I mean, what are those thick bands, those purple ones that are – no, the purple ones are the skinny ones, right? The blue band. Or blue or the, the blue band. The green bands are about like that. The blue bands are about four inches wide. Yep. Real thick. They're, a, they're fearsome. You can sit down on those and hardly stretch them at all. Yep. You know, now – if we are training a person who is in this situation with either the boxes or the bands, is this somebody that we would also train during that three-week period of time, four-week period of time, whatever it takes, is this someone we would also train with weight on the bar? Well, no. We're trying to get them to a body weight squat And an argument could be made that you wouldn't even use the bar on somebody's back in this kind of situation. Just a stick, you know, because you want to get them used to having their hands on the bar. I think probably the best way to do this would be to take a light bar, put it on their back so that they get used to the idea that they are pushing on a bar. And then set your bands up in a position where they can learn how to drive their hips up off of the band as it comes up out of the bottom and helps them back into the upright position. But loading that equipment is completely the wrong idea. That's not what you would do. All right. And I've seen coaches do this. All through this, I, 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 I want to emphasize that some coaches have got the wrong idea about this, okay? And this needs to be addressed among you people who are coaching barbell training, all right? There are, there are problems when you, as a coach, stand there for weeks at a time and watch your client squat this high and you don't say anything about it and i see it all the time i see it all the time and it i get tired of it it, the the full range of motion is is the most important aspect of the squat if they can't produce a full range of motion you have not fixed it up so that they can't i've just told you three ways that you can get them strong enough to use the range of motion. If they're strong enough to use the range of motion and you are standing there watching them squat here, it's your fault. Your fault. 
make them go below parallel. A lot of times, you people, and I'm speaking to the coaches right now, are reluctant to confront a technical error like that on the part of your client. It's your job to do that. That's why they're paying you the money is to make sure they're training correctly. They're not paying you the money. You're not a personal trainer. You're a barbell coach, right? Personal trainers are babysitters that talk to their clients about their grandkids and shit like this while they're doing leg extensions. That's not what we do. We are barbell coaches. And you're being paid to ensure that the client gets a better training experience with you than they can get by themselves at home or by themselves in a gym. Okay? It's your job to make them go below parallel because anybody can squat high. But I see a lot of you who are reluctant to say this kind of shit to their clients, and I get tired of it. If, if you're going to sit there and let the guy squat here, what does he need you for? He can do that by himself, right? He needs you to help him get below parallel. What are you going to tell him to get him below parallel? Well, the first thing you always try is get your knees out because that fixes it 95% of the time. Knees out produces depth. But he needs to hear that from you. He doesn't need to hear you say, great set, after he just did five this far above parallel. Okay, it's not, that's not why he's paying you. So get interventional, okay? Make up your mind that the quality of the client's workout is your responsibility, and if it wasn't, he doesn't need to pay you. All right? I'll leave anything out. That's kind of my thoughts on, the, on what goes on in the squad. No, I mean, if somebody can't squat to depth um, due to uh... – Due to being detrained, yeah. they are they are going to be able to still most likely pull off the floor. So you have to shift your thinking in terms of what's the primary strength exercise at this point, and it's going to be the pull. It's um, going to be the deadlift. But it, while you are setting aside time during the workout to teach them how to squat, you have to make the most efficient use of that time. That's right. And the most efficient use of that time is to figure out a way to train the full range of motion of a below parallel squat and these are that's my what, ideas about the ways to do that. the point is that's why you don't load that's why you don't load the squat people become dependent on on the box or the band or whatever that's if right. you start loading it right and you haven't taught them the full range of motion exactly so, just, so you're working only range of motion on the squat and in terms of the strength movement it's going to be the pull and go ahead and load up the pull they can hand, they can generally handle the pull just fine i have trained women who could not uh, who could not perform a full range of motion squat within four inches of depth. Right. And gone over to the platform and deadlifted 135 yeah. the first day. Yep. Happens all the time. It's not uncommon. Not, not uncommon. uncommon at all. Yeah. So you're fucking up if, you, if you're putting weight on the bar on a partial because people will just rely on it. And they'll, they'll just they'll keep never, doing partials. They'll never hit parallel. Same thing if you stand there for weeks at a time and watch your client – Squat here, and don't say anything about it. You're, you're, 
they're not going to just spontaneously go below parallel one. What's going to happen is they're going to go to there and then to there. And then pretty soon they're not doing a squat. Happens all the time. Happens most of the time. If you as a coach do not do your job, it's your job to make the client squat below parallel. You've got to figure out how to do it. And those three ways I just talked about are the are the 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 ways that we uh, have found work the best. Now I went down to to San Antonio and talked to Mr. Zunker about designing us a little device that would fit in the rack that would help candy lever you up out of the bottom of the squat with a with with load on one side and a little seat on the other side. And I've got that at the gym. It's too awkward to use. It's just too damned awkward to use. It didn't turn out like I wanted it to. And uh, it's one, one of the worst aspects of that fucking thing is is you're going to pinch a finger off trying to get it in the rack. Right. It's, it's dangerous to set the damn thing up. It would have to be set up in a rack and pretty much left there without having to take it out of the rack and install it every single time you needed to use it. Yep. Um, and really, you know, in retrospect, I think it was a good idea, but it's it, it, in, in, if I'm going to have a device and I'm going to have room set aside in the gym for a device to solve this particular range of motion in a detrained person squat, I'm going to have a leg press machine because the leg press machine works every single time it's tried. And the it's it solves all of your problems and if you if you have the room in the gym for the footprint of this big machine then that's what you need in there there are two circumstances under which a person cannot perform a correct deadlift with proper coaching and that qualifier is very important all right if you don't know how to coach the deadlift then it shouldn't be a shock to you when your client can't deadlift correctly. Deadlift is dependent on lower back extension when the bar comes off the floor. You have to be able to set up your low back in extension. And some people are, are natural at this. Some people don't ever pick anything up off the floor wrong in lumbar flexion some people have absolutely no idea whatsoever what position their back is in in terms of extension and flexion all right so there's two things about back position here there is angle all right the generalized angle of the low back and upper back as it approaches the floor so the reference angle is the floor which is horizontal and this angle made by the general line drawn through the back. And then the other factor is the degree of extension or flexion in the lumbar and thoracic vertebra. All right? Normal anatomical position is, is the position in which we want to pull, which is lumbar extension and thoracic extension. Now, there's a curve the lordotic curve in the low back, and there's the kyphotic curve in the upper back. The kyphosis and the lordosis are two opposite directions. So looking from the side, the lumbar curve 
would be convex and the thoracic curve would be concave. Now, an educated coach understands that there is quite a bit of natural variability in the appearance of a human back in normal anatomical position. All right? Some people have a relatively fat, a flat lordotic lumbar curve. Some people are what, what would be called kyphotic, have an exaggerated kyphosis or thoracic curve. You know, depending on age, a person, as they age, might develop a, a, a kyphosis, a more pronounced upper back curve. And some people are born with a very flat lumbar lordotic curve. All right, so there, there's a, a huge amount of variability. But when you put the person in normal anatomical position, which is chest up, lumbar spine in extension, and then you bend them over, you're dealing with two different things. You're dealing with the intravertebral relationships, and then you're dealing with the gross angle produced by the back in normal anatomical position. You have to understand all these things. Now, there's a huge amount of variability in, in that appearance, all right? Some people who are in thoracic extension are going to look to your inexperienced eye as if they're rounded over when they're not. They're as extended as they can get, and that's good. That's fine. Right? And there are some people who have been training a long time that have got great big fat spinal erectors that will look to your untrained eye as though their lumbar is in flexion. And it's not. They've just got big muscles on either side of the spine. And your untrained eye does not recognize that muscle mass. It does not process the fact that the vertebral position underneath the vertical the muscle mass is in lumbar extension just like it's supposed to be right if all you're used to seeing is little skinny people you're not going to be able to recognize whether the spinal position is correct or not couple this with the fact that the human spine is fairly tolerant of a little bit of lumbar flexion and a little bit of thoracic flexion it's fairly tolerant of that you know a little bit of lumbar flexion is not a is not a complete deal breaker because if you have got a a pr set of five on the bar and you've been training nine months and you're pulling the bar off the floor with a pr set of five if your lumbar spine shows a tiny little bit of flexion in the last two reps, we're okay with that. It's not going to kill you, right? Especially if you are making an attempt to hold the low back in extension throughout the entire set of five, okay? You know, I, the way you hurt your back, I'll tell you how you hurt your back. You hurt your back by putting it in the wrong position of extension, in other words, some flexion, 
and then you rotate it. That's how you hurt your back. You pick up the lawnmower, which is an awkward object, and you put it in the back of the truck by rotating from your from your <laughs> hips, not with your feet on the ground, all right? And the fact of the matter is, is most people pick shit up wrong all the time, and not everybody's dead, <laughs> right? Not everybody's paralyzed, okay? So you could, you could lift things wrong if you have to, all right? But what we want to teach you to do is to do things the most physiologically efficient way possible, and that is to lift in thoracic and lumbar extension because do you tow a car with a chain or a spring? Now think about that. You want to tow the car with a non-deformable object, which is the chain. That way all of the force gets transmitted to the car you're towing. For the same reason, you want to pull with a back locked in rigid extension, thoracic head and lumbar extension. Because that way, all of the pull generated by the extending knees and hips goes up the back, down the arms to the bar with no leaks. Okay? So that's why we yell and scream about lumbar and thoracic extension. Now, if you've got a person that you're just starting off on the deadlift, and that person is has got a gut, person's fat, overweight, person's five, nine, 300 pounds, they may have a problem getting into a good position to pull off the floor because their belly is mechanically interfering with their ability to show you a lumbar extension or even a thoracic extension. So in a situation like that, there are some modifications you might be able to make. If, if, if the problem is not too severe, what we would do is widen the stance and widen the grip from what we would consider to be ideal to make some room in between your client's thighs for their belly. All right? There's nothing wrong with doing that because if, if they're paying attention to you, you're the coach, they're the client, they're going to be losing some of their belly pretty quick anyway, right? And here in six months, you may be able to get back to a real good form with these people, all right? The other way to do this would be, and it, it, I, ha, I cringe when I tell you this, but it's a, it's a valid approach to this, is to have the range of motion shortened by having them do a rack pull instead of a deadlift. Now, God damn it, you use this when it's absolutely necessary, not as the default for every client that you cannot get into lumbar extension. If you don't know how to get a client of normal body composition into lumbar extension, that's your fault as a coach. You don't just default to the rack pull because it's easier for you. You know, it's, it, it's, you, you think it's easier for the client? Well, the client's not here for easy. The client is here 
for you to teach them what the hell to do correctly. If they wanted to do it easy, they don't need your ass for that. Right? They can just watch videos and go to the gym. But if you've got a client who you have had rack pulling instead of pulling off the floor for three months because you couldn't get them in a correct position off the floor, once again, it's your fault. It's not the client's fault. It's your fault. You're not coaching low back position. Learn how. It's the same reason every trainer and powerlifting coach in the world uh, uses a sumo rather than right. a regular deadlift because they don't know how to teach back extension. They don't know how to teach back extension. And so sumo you, puts you, you in a extended back position whether you're having to coach it. Yeah. So if you're if yeah. you're defaulting to rack pulls uh, because someone can't set their back, you it's the same thing as doing as just defaulting to sumo. It's no it different. It's coaching laziness yeah. is what it is. Coaching laziness. There's a hole in your coaching. There's not a hole in this person's ability necessarily to be coached. But if you haven't done everything you need to do to fix that lumbar position with coaching, then the problem is yours, not the client's. Yeah, you have to learn how to do this. If you're going to be a barbell coach and you can't teach a lumbar extension, well, you need to get to where you can or you're not a barbell coach. You're just a personal trainer. Okay. Uh, and by the way, for the the, you, the big fat guys, um, it, it, it doesn't have to be a mid-shin even rack pull. It, it definitely doesn't need to be above the uh, tibial tuberosity rack pull. You can raise the ball bar two or three inches. Just to buy yourself just, a little bit of yeah, room. a plate, you know, at the bottom. A 45-pound plate or a bumper. Yeah. Or a, or a few rubber mats, and that's enough. That's that's that right. may be enough. So so the point is the the least amount of modification that you need. So don't immediately go to a high rack pull. Like if you're the guy's pulling six hundred pounds or something, you just raise it up a little. Not enough. Raise it up a little more, and just use the minimum amount, and then work on getting them back down to the floor. Most of the time, when I have a a, a real stubborn lifter that I'm trying to to get into the position of lumbar extension at the bottom of the pool. I can start with the, with the bar at the top of the deadlift, demonstrate to them, touch them on the back and everything, and show them what a lumbar extension feels like. And then I can have them bend over in extension. And once again, here are the two variables, extension and angle. I can have them bend over into an angle. And the minute the lumbar starts to unlock i stop them i stand them back up i touch them on the back and carry them down a little further and piecemeal we can get you all the way down to the floor with a lumbar in extension if only i have the ability to show you what it feels like to keep the thing in lumbar extension because that's the problem here is lumbar extension now if you got a guy with a big belly okay that may not be fixable right now. If you have to do a rack pull with a guy like that, then that's what you have to do. But let's just admit to ourselves that that type of client is not what makes up the majority of your practice. Exactly right. That's not who you train. You train normal people that you just can't, don't know how to coach. All right? Learn how to coach. Learn how to coach the lumbar extension. That's your job. That's what you're being paid to do. 
And an, an RDL has never taught anybody how to hold their back in nope. extension. It so certainly that, has helped. The RDL th- is a damn near useless exercise. It is it is useful at the intermediate and advanced levels for some type some types of programs, but it has absolutely no place in training novices. It's another None thing at that all. People de- people uh, default to is to go to an RDL if someone can't set their back. It's it's it, it doesn't help. It doesn't transfer. All no you're tra- all you're doing when you do an RDL is making the hamstrings real, real, real fucking sore. But your lumbar is not learning anything. Right. Okay. The lumbar has to stay locked when the pull starts in the concentric phase off the floor. It's easy to set the lumbar in extension, go down eccentrically and come back up without unlocking it. You're not learning anything there, okay? Just because the client can do it easier, well, that's a function of the movement pattern you're showing them. You're not correcting the movement pattern that's, in fact, the problem, which is a different movement pattern entirely, okay? I'm going to go ahead and mention this right now because I know it's going to come up. The, The... the diameter of the plates is yelled about all the time, all right, amongst people that are just not used to being around gyms, all right. For reasons that are lost in the mists of time, but probably had to do with safety back when the Olympic lifts, the overhead lifts, were challenged at, at, the, at meets, before the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift were ever even, ever even invented as contest lifts. Uh, we had to design equipment that would not get everybody killed. So it was decided a long time ago that the diameter of a 45-pound plate would be 45 centimeters, which is a little over 17 and a half inches in diameter. So that means that the radius of the plate is about 8 and a half inches somewhere in there which means that there is about eight and a half inches between the loaded barbell and the floor by default this is the place from which we deadlift at the bottom now you could lower that by raising the floor up what do they call those deficit deadlifts mm-hmm. i don't see the point all that does is put you in a harder position to keep in extension when you could just be using heavier weights, uh, or you could you could whine about that and say, well, eight and a half inch off the floor is kind of arbitrary. Why don't we do nine and a half inches? Why don't we do ten and it's a half? Valid inches? point. Valid point. Fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, it is what it is. <laughs> here's the equipment you got to lift on. That's right. All right, and you want to shim it up. Go ahead, you know. Do that little bit of masturbation. If it makes you feel better, just go ahead. But the fact of the matter is that we deadlift for 45-pound plates, and this is where they are off the floor. By default, that's the deadlift. So quit whining about it and just just get used to the idea that this is where the deadlift comes off the floor. It doesn't actually matter. We're all doing the same thing. It's worked just fine for making people strong for about 100 years now. And you can complain about it if you want to, but that's pointless. Everybody knows what you're doing, you know. Just deadlift the fucking bar. Learn to do it correctly. You know, learn how to get in the correct position off the floor. More importantly, you coaches that are continually 
tolerating clients that cannot pull from the floor. There had better be a damn good reason why not. You know, if you've got an injury that predisposes that client to not be able to pull off the floor, that's one thing. But if you just don't know how to coach lumbar position off the floor, again, that's your fault. And you need to correct that. Now let's talk about press. Why don't we? Press is a um, very important exercise. Uh, it is a full body movement. Press, uh, the kinetic chain of the press is the ground, the floor under your feet, all the way to your hands. Every part of the body is involved in the press. When the press gets heavy, there's probably not any better an abdominal exercise in the gym than a press. Presses are hard. Presses are technical. Presses are, are very, very sensitive to technique variation. Uh, you know, for a long, long time, I left them out of the program because I didn't know how to coach them. And it became obvious to me when we were writing the first edition of the book that we, well you just can't do this you can't just ignore the the press the press has been an important exercise for decades and decades and us working around it by just thinking we're power lifters is not acceptable so we put it into the program and it's become a very important part of the program there are a whole bunch of people across the country right now who are pressing over 200 pounds because of our book that weren't doing it before this has been a valuable addition to everybody's training uh, but there are circumstances that keep you from doing the press the way we coach it with a bunch of hip movement and rebound and just a, a kind of a whole total body athletic type of press there's a lot of lot of circumstances under which you can't do that somebody is is detrained to the point where they are having trouble with a 45 pound bar all this athletic hip movement stuff is fairly irrelevant you know and that'll come later plenty of time to 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 add complexity to this beautiful athletic movement once we develop a solid base of strength off of the range of motion at the top of the movement pattern and uh and there are also circumstances under which a person might not be able to perform a 3.0, as it is known, press. For example, my knee is, is, is not functioning very well. And I can't do a, a hips-dominant press like I used to be able to do. And what we have found is that a press, what we call the press up the rack, works pretty well for this and what what you're going to do in a situation like this is you're going to stand in the in the rack with the bar in the in the correct position out of the rack where you normally would take it out of the rack step back set your press up and do your set of five or your triple or whatever you're going to do and then put it back up so what we do with with some clients in a situation like this is have them press the bar up the uprights of the rack in a straight line now you can still use a rebound but the rebound is not in the hips and knees like it is in a in an actual 
full Olympic type press. But it's it is it is the the rebound that is caused uh, by the shoulders and lats and triceps working to start the bar off of the off the shoulders. All right. Some people who can't do that just press the thing up the rack. The 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 critical thing you get into when press up the rack like that is that the friction against the rack. If you are lean, if you're standing too far away from the rack and there's a bunch of angle between you and the rack, the friction caused by that angle is going to make the thing hard. You have to stand close enough to the rack so that the press is vertical. And you run the thing up in a straight vertical line, and as soon as it gets past the top of your head, you get under the bar, just like you would in a regular press. All right? And if, if there's a bunch of variability in your stance, there's going to be a bunch of variability in the friction against the rack. You've got to standardize that immediately. Find the best place to stand. Stand there every single time during your setup. Drive the bar up the rack, and you'll find that this allows you to press very effectively. Now, we run into a lot of problems with older people and older shoulders in the press. And this is, a, this is probably the biggest problem we have at the, at the seminars with teaching the press, wouldn't you say? Old people show up and just can't lock the damn thing out. Yeah, if there's yeah, if there's a problem with the press, it's usually the it, locking it, it out ahead. It's usually the lockout. Sometimes physical idiots will have timing problems with the oh yeah with the bounce and stuff. But that's we can teach that. Right, we can coach that kind of stuff. But if you've got old shoulders and you're having trouble with lockout, you just do the best you can. But what we have found it as an extremely useful way to deal with creaky shoulders at the top is that we will go over to the, to the chin-up bar in the power rack, have the person take a press grip on the bar, and hang from the bar. Hang from the bar and then look and see what position they're in. If they can hang from the bar in a lockout position with straight elbows and extended shoulders then they can get to the point eventually where they can lock out the press in that position too. And, and the way we, we use that little test as a, as, a, as a way to see whether there is bony impingement in either elbows or shoulders. Because if there's bony impingement, there's nothing you can do about that. You just do the best you can. But if you can actually hang in that position, then there's no bony reason why you can't lock it out with some training at the top and uh, what we would do is uh, ha have that person hang in that position two or three times and then have them put their feet back on the ground hang and then slowly push up their body weight until the hand lets go of the bar over their head while they keep the elbows and shoulders in that same position. And, you know, it's a, that's, a, that's a teaching tool. 
here's the position you're supposed to be in at the top. You should be locked out completely. You should be locked out at the top in this position. And here's where you were before, and here's where we want you. See the difference. Okay, now let's do the set again. And that's how we do that. And it's it 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 works pretty well. You know, if you've got if you got somebody with you know, you got a seventy five year old guy who's, you know, kind of beat up shoulders, he may not be able to lock the press out very effectively at the top, especially not at first. He may get to where he can. Okay. But he may not get to where he can, and it may be that bony impingement is keeping him from doing an effective press lockout directly over the top of his shoulders because at an effective lockout position, the bar, the glenoid fossa in the middle of the foot are in a straight vertical line. If he can't do that, he may not be able to use the, the press very heavy because he's just not in balance at the top of the press lockout. So that'll be a judgment call on your part as the coach as to whether or not he can do the press. But if he can hang in a position from the bar overhead, he can hang in a position where his hands, his shoulder joint, and his feet line up in a straight vertical line, then he can get to where he can do a press. It may take some time, but he, he there's nothing going to prevent him anatomically from assuming that position with the bar locked out over the head. And it'll be your job as the coach to make that happen. Another problem we run into occasionally is uh, an anthropometry problem. If you've got, and there, there's not a huge number of people that, that present like this, but if you've got a little short, weird-looking humerus and a long forearm, it's going to be a problem for you to press because with your elbows up in the correct position for the rack of the press the bar is that far from your shoulder hell it may be up in about your nose i mean look at baker you know this is he's got the classic anthropometry of a guy can't press because his his humerus is about that long, <laughs> and his forearm is about like that, and it's it's just a it's a weird deal. But that's not common. What is common is a uh, person will show you possibly a difficult position to start the press out of, and you can deal with that. You just have to figure out how to do it because you can't lower the bar by pulling the elbow back because now you've screwed up the vector that the bar's got to have applied to it and you've headed it in that direction elbows have to be vertical the forearms have to be vertical so that you can apply a vertical force to the bar i think a lot of people don't press because they just like to lay down you know power lifting has taken the the bench press to a position it really doesn't deserve the press is a better overall exercise than the bench press um, bench presses are you know a, a valuable part of your training and benches need to be used correctly but if you're press if you're benching instead of doing your presses well you're just you know being lazy you know presses are an extremely important movement you need to get to where you can do them 
Well, what ends up happening then in lieu of presses? Bench press. Bench press. Now, bench press is part of this program. We're not going to tell you not to bench press. <laughs> you know, you need to bench. But you need to do both. You need to bench and you need to press. And if there are problems with the bench, then you're going to have to modify it. Okay? If, uh, if the bench... Uh, a proper bench press, the way we coach it, a proper bench press uses a grip that produce a grip width that produces a vertical forearm at the bottom of the range of motion where the bar touches you on the chest. It produces a vertical forearm. All right. But sometimes this causes problems. Sometimes these problems are serious enough to where we have to adjust the grip width of the bench press and what we do is uh for shoulder injuries and 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 things like this we will narrow the grip of the bench press back to the same approximate grip width as the press and uh this takes some of the stress off the shoulders if we do it like this it reduces the amount of weight you can bench as well but pretty much everybody benches more than they press because the range of motion is a little shorter and because they can mash their upper back into the bench without having to support the weight of the bar being pressed with their whole body standing in balance. Everybody benches more than they press. That's just a universal deal. All right, that's why everybody likes to bench instead of press. They get to handle heavier weights. We include both of these exercises in this program because we recognize the benefits and drawbacks of not using one or the other. So, uh, what we end up doing in the in, in the in the case of a shoulder injury popping up on the bench press is narrow the grip because that takes the moment arm away from. The distance between the hand and the shoulder joint. See that big long moment arm? That's a whole bunch of leverage against the shoulder. This takes that away. And you can bench almost as much weight close grip as you can. You know, I'd say most people can bench press ninety percent of the weight. It's not that far off. Close grip that yeah. they can than they can with a competition grip. I have to, and it's, I have to bench uh, closer and. Yeah, my shoulders get really. Yeah, especially if your shoulders are fucked up, the trade-off is well worth it. You know, oh, whatever, well worth whatever the little bit of weight that you got to take off is fine. You know? you know, and what we have said in the past is, is we think that the, the bench press ought to be in a contest. The way you modify the bench press in a contest to keep everybody honest and keep everybody's range of motion. Uh, more more similar because a, a lightweight lifter can use a very wide legal bench press grip and move the bar a couple of inches. Oh, you saw that they changed those rules now. No, what'd they do? Um, the elbow has to be, was it the below the shoulder? For the range of motion, uh-huh. right? But they still didn't address the... I think vertical forearms as well. No, there's nothing about vertical forearms. See, they don't understand that... The, the elbow joint, it's it, the elbow joint... The bottom of the elbow joint has to has to be even with the top of the shoulder joint, and then in their and then in their technical rules See, they have just, a picture of it wrong. 
It's, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, I don't yeah, know I how saw, you I fucked saw, that up that well. I saw the I mean, picture, and it looked like they were wanting vertical forms. I guess I was wrong. Well, they, I, I don't know what they're wanting, but whatever it is, they haven't analyzed it correctly. Uh, if you take a grip that produces a vertical forearm on both sides at the bottom of the range of motion where the bar touches the chest, then you standardize the pre- the bench press across pretty much across all weight classes yep right because the arbitrary 32 inch width grip produces a completely different mechanical effect in a super heavy weight lifter than it does in a 114 pound lifter you know it's a completely different set of mechanical circumstances both of them are legal you standardize that by making the judges judge the vertical forearm and all all you have to do is is give a red light on that you know it's not that hard to see you know the head judge can see it very clearly the side judges can move to where they can see it it's it's that's an easy rule change to make and it standardizes the lifts between the weight classes the other, the other cute thing about this IPF rule is that the head judge is the only one in a position to be able to make the call. That's right. So not only does he have to do the bench command and the rack command, or the press command and the rack command, but so he also has to check the depth. These powerlifting judges <laughs> keep wanting to talk to the guy. I don't, I don't understand it. Now, why do you have to communicate? All you have to do is sit there and, did he do it right or not? You don't have to participate in the lift. Powerlifting is so incredibly screwed up. It's just it makes so little sense and it's so easy to fix it sure yeah but they won't do it so you know it's just it's uh um an easy it's an easy thing to do is just to you know if you've got if you've got shoulder problems you're going to pretty much return your ability to bench press by narrowing the grip just narrow the grip yeah, the other trade-off is a partial thing, but but then you've got extra equipment, and then you you know you don't have that bottom of the range of motion. So right, if you can you're get it leaving done, a bunch of the yeah. of the range of motion out of. If being you can trained, get it done with the close grip, that's the best you know. way to go. Now, the remaining major barbell exercise that we we do in this program is power clean. Uh, power cleans are an important movement pattern because power cleans keep your ability to move quickly under a load commensurate with the strength it takes to move that load as your squat your press your bench press and your deadlift go up power clean is dependent on explosive movement all right now this makes it extremely useful for most people all right but it also makes it more dangerous an exercise to use as you get older if you're over the age of 45 or 50, you may want to rethink the, the need for doing power cleans because connective tissue, you know, tendons and ligaments and stuff just aren't of the quality they are when you're 50 as they were when you were 20. I would say that anybody that's in, you know, a teenage, 20, 30-year-old ought to be doing cleans and snatches. You just need to learn how to do these movements. If you are 55, it may be something you want to think about. All right. Um, power cleans are also 
uh, dependent more on anthropometry than some of these other exercises because of the fact that you have to rack the bar on your shoulders. Now, if, the, if your humerus is short and your forearm is long, you're going to have a hell of a problem racking the bar on the shoulders. Some of that you can mitigate with grip width. Some of it you can't. If you can't rack a clean on your shoulders, but you can rack a snatch overhead, then the, the power snatch becomes your default quick movement. Keep in mind that there's a trade-off, though. You can't snatch as much weight as you can clean. So a power snatch by itself is not as valuable as a power clean because the fact that you just can't move as much weight over that much longer range of motion that's required in a power snatch. All right, we, we do these to keep your ability to express strength as power commensurate with your strength as it increases from the other four lifts. All right. And the older you get, the less critical that is. So not everybody needs to power clean. Most people do need to power clean. But not everybody needs to power clean and this is a this is a, a something you need to be thinking about. You know, if you've hurt yourself doing clean several times, maybe it's time to hang them up. Uh, you, but you just got to remember, you got you to be able to determine whether you hurt yourself doing a clean by doing it wrong or you hurt, hurt yourself doing a clean because you can't do it right. Right? It's two different situations there. So, uh, you know, it may, be want to, it may be that you want to eliminate the cleans. But it also may be that you as a coach just don't feel comfortable coaching the thing. This is a coaching problem. It is not a cleaning problem. You don't know how to coach the clean? Well, you're not prepared. You're not prepared as a coach. My favorite thing is that people are very – coaches are very comfortable just uh, ignoring a lot of the stuff you say. Yes. But when you say uh, guys over 40 or 50 should consider whether or not they want to do the clean, they're like, yes. Ripito says you don't, you have don't right. need to clean. Ripito says <laughs> I don't have to coach the clean. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, except that's not what Ripito said. That's not what Ripito said. What Ripito said is, if you don't know how to coach the clean, then you need to get to where you can coach the clean. Because if you haven't coached the clean and coached a bunch of cleans and don't know how to coach it, you're not in a really in a very good position to determine whether or not your client needs to do it. Because you don't have any experience with it. Right. You know, so, you know, once again, you know, I'm kind of all through these topics. I, I'm kind of wrapping everything up with you as a coach. You, you know, there are times to modify the program, but there are more times when you don't modify the program because all of the modification that has to be done has already been done to the program. We figured it all out already and the fact that you can't get it to work right is 95 percent of the time that is a problem with your ability to coach this material not a, not the problem with the material itself all right 
I hate to be egomaniacal like that, but that's just the case. Comes the, uh, this is the last thing we're going to discuss. The only assistance exercise that we use in this program on a, on a regular basis, and the one that we introduce first is chin-ups. Chin-ups are very valuable assistance exercise, but they never constitute a major exercise. And the reason for that is they, uh, they're hard to quantify. They're hard to quantify. Now, there are people who prefer to coach three sets of five chins resting between the sets with a load tied around the waist. And if, if you want to do that, that's fine. But not everybody's shoulders can tolerate that much tension. All right, there are people that can chin themselves with 100 pounds tied on. That's real good. That's real good. But for most people, chins represent an assistance exercise that's just done with body weight. And a variable on the load ends up being reps with body weight. All right? So if you start this program and you get to where you can do three sets of chins, and if you're doing body weight, it'll be like you do 10, 8 reps, and then 7 reps. All right? And then... You go from a body weight of 175 to 205, and you're doing 10, 8, and 7 on the chins. What have your chins done? Well, they got stronger because the resistance went up. That's fine. It's an assistance exercise. You need to do them because they fill in some important holes. They let you train your beautiful biceps. Okay, But they don't need to be done or thought about at the level of one of the primary barbell exercises because they're not a primary barbell exercise. They don't train that much muscle mass. But the muscle mass they do train is important. So I would always do the chin-ups. Now, let's say we're, we're dealing with a population like we've been talking about today that can't do a chin-up, and that happens all the time. Lots and lots of women, most women, can't do a chin-up at all. If they can, they can only do one or two, all right? Overweight people can't do a chin-up. Guy's fat, 300-pound guy, can't do a chin-up at all. Well, what do we use in place of the chin-up for him? We use the only other machine that is valuable in the gym, and that is a lat pull. The lat machine is valuable if you can't do body weight chin-ups because the motion itself is valuable enough to to add to the program especially if the gym's got room for the machine and lat machines allow you to do a pretty thoroughly close copy of a, of a chin-up and uh, allow you to do that kind of pulling mechanism because if you'll think about it we're doing movement patterns here. We're not doing muscle groups. We don't talk about muscle groups. We don't think in terms of muscle groups. We think in terms of movement patterns. Squatting down, standing back up. Pushing something up over your head. Pushing something away from you. Picking something up off of the floor. And pulling something toward yourself. That would be the chin-up. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. 
And if you've got a lat machine in your gym, you have opened up the usefulness of that movement pattern to a whole population that can't do it if you only have the facilities to do chin-ups in the gym. A lat machine's a valuable addition to the program if you've got room for it. If you don't have room for it, you just have to make do. Typically, what will happen is if you take an untrained person and make their deadlift go up from, you know, 165, 185, up to 365, which you can do, then suddenly that person, through the use of the deadlift and just getting general overall strength, now can do chin-ups too. So chin-ups aren't absolutely essential in a strength program, but they're a nice addition to have if you've got the room for the chin-up, for the lat machine. Chin-ups, we, the racks we use in our gyms have a chin-up bar installed at the top of the top of the rack. It's the part of the component that holds the part of the structure that holds the, the rack together. So I would recommend that, uh, you know, if you've got room for it in your gym that you that you have a lat machine. Don't spend a bunch of money on the damn thing, but you'll find that the the margins of the gym population that you will be training will significantly benefit from the addition of a, a lat machine to the gym. Now, I think that pretty much exhausts the topic here are my notes on the subject. And, and so the, the, the primary gist of our discussion today is that if we are in the business of training a very broad demographic of people, if we're in the business of training people of all walks of life, of all ages, which we need to be, because all of those people benefit from strength training, then we need to be able to modify within reason the basic exercises that we're going to put these people on that allow them to get the benefits of that exercise until their strength reaches the point where they can do the exercise in the normally prescribed way. And I think that, you know, if you apply these little tips that you will find that you are able to train people very, very effectively. Uh, people that you wouldn't have normally thought you could train. You know, there's there's very few things more satisfying than seeing a 75-year-old lady deadlift her body weight. You can do that for her. And um, you add immeasurably to her quality of life by making her that strong. You've injury-proofed her. And you've made her able to enjoy things that she hasn't been able to enjoy in a very long time. Just with the strength that comes from these basic barbell exercises that we talk about. So, uh, I think that probably caps our discussion on this. If you've got any questions for us about how this applies to you, don't hesitate to uh well don't call me all right i don't want to talk to you but but you know 
That's what the internet is for. <laughs> Just type, all right? And we'll see you next time right here on Starting Strength Radio.